today on Ag News Daily. What we're doing currently is able to take advantage of various platforms, applications that are out there, particularly, as you said, for managing uh, futures and, and foreign exchange. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. We've got a great conversation coming up later on with Emma Weston, who we've had on the podcast before, but it has been quite some time, so do stay tuned for that. But I'm also joined, of course, by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Yeah, Delaney, this wind, I tell you what, it is something else. I've been talking on Twitter with some uh, grower friends of mine across Iowa and Illinois and South Dakota, and there's real concern about corn going down with 50-mile-an-hour wind gusts on saturated soil on stocks that have struggled all season long. I mean, we could see some serious field losses on this uh, unharvested corn crop. Absolutely. And not only that, but we continue to push this harvest season back further and further. I want to kick it off with the news today, talking about the USDA's weekly crop progress report. And this is the slowest harvest we have seen since 2009, according to the USDA. As of Sunday, we still don't even have full maturity on our corn. We're at about 86% estimated as mature. Usually for this time of year, though, Mike, we should be at about 97%. Yeah, really, we should be, you know, completely wrapping it up with a few exceptions up north. But gosh, this year it is just terrible, and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. You know, you talk about being 30%. That's four points less than the trade was. I don't know if it's on my end or not. It was like a weird cutout. Okay. Uh, starting starting where? Um, just where after I stop talking. Okay. Yeah, it is a slow harvest season, that's for sure. Normally, like you say, Delaney, we're wrapping up this time of year, and corn harvest is rocking and rolling. Usually we're about 50% complete. We're only at 30 and it's going to be tough to get these combines rolling here in the next week. This rainfall is expected to continue across key parts of the Corn Belt. That it is. And soybean harvest usually is also chugging right along this time of year. But we're currently only at about 46% finished as of Sunday. So that's 18 percentage points behind the five-year average. So this weather is not what folks ordered. Mother Nature is not cooperating this year, Mike. No, no. I'm, I know a lot of guys and gals who are going to be very excited to see 2019 in the rearview mirror. Yes, but I think that raises the question if we continue to get pushed back this harvest season, what happens for fall field work? Does it get pushed back to the spring and do we repeat the same vicious cycle that we just are finishing up right now? I know. Gosh. And you add on top of that, getting harvest out in wet fields, we're going to have compaction concerns. Ugh. Yeah, it'll be good to get 2019 behind us, but then, like you say, we may need to really want to get 2020 behind us as well. Yes, we certainly might, but they uh, might be a little more supportive for commodity prices. A little bit more support. We did get an update from China overnight that caused a bit of a rally in the markets. China said they are going to issue a tariff quota for 10 million metric tons of U.S. soybean purchases. That caused some buying in the overnight in all the grains. Soybeans led it, but uh, just not able to maintain the strength as the cold light of day shone down. And uh, there was, you know, recognition that you know China is 
cargoes of beans from Brazil. And the Brazilian real is still at a huge discount to the U.S. dollar. And so we're going to have to fight to get these sales on the books. And uh, we need China to come through and actually get this thing done. Well, Mike, in other U.S.-China trade news, we saw on Monday the cabinet meeting of, of course, all of President Trump's cabinet folks. There were a couple of big things that came out of that meeting, the first being the U.S.-China trade deal. It sounds like Lighthizer was there on Monday to report that he is very confident that himself and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin will be speaking to high-level Chinese officials on Friday. And he said that while there's still some issues that they have to resolve, they're working towards that goal of finalizing the deal. And this is still just phase one. That's still what we're talking about, right? Not the full comprehensive thing that uh, the president wants. Right. But I also saw CNBC reported on Monday that President Trump says China is now buying U.S. agricultural products. But as he said there, we continue to see them buying shipments of Brazilian soybeans. So I think that poses the question, are they really buying U.S. agricultural products? Right. And will they be buying enough of them to actually move the needle on these trade talks? And more importantly, I think for our listeners, move the needle on prices. Absolutely. Well, I think that's interesting, too. I did not bring this up in yesterday's news segment, but it appears that China is filing a WTO lawsuit or complaint. What's the first step? I think it would be a complaint, right? Yeah, I think they lodge a complaint. I think you're right. So they're filing a complaint against the United States, and that came out just on Monday here. But I can't imagine that that seems like it's going to be positive towards U.S. trade talks. Right. Yeah, I've got a feeling this is going to uh, cast a pall on the discussions when they do finally get kicked off again uh, in the first week of November there. Yeah, they are trying to impose a $2.4 billion penalty on the U.S. in a case over Chinese subsidies dating back years. And I just thought if they are going to the WTO and putting this together, that doesn't bode well for U.S. trade talks, in my opinion. Right. It's one more thing that uh, negotiators will use to say, hey, you're not playing fair. You're not uh, you know, negotiating in good faith. And maybe we'll see this thing get kicked down the road yet again. Yes, and it sounds like one other thing, kind of getting kicked down the road, so to speak, is what's going on on the RFS front. As I mentioned, they had their Monday cabinet meeting yesterday, and Secretary Perdue assured President Trump at the meeting that farmers are going to come around to the EPA's plan. And he said that, quote, once they fully understand what you've done here, they'll be fine as as they see it implemented. So Perdue thinks that it's really just... They don't understand it. Farmers don't understand it. And we haven't seen it implemented yet. However, as I talked about yesterday, a lot of farm and biofuel groups have come together to basically share with Congress their criticism of the new plan that was released a couple weeks ago. So I have a hard time believing that people are just going to magically come around to it. Yeah. And I, I, I think I get what Secretary Purdue is saying. We have to see the numbers actually come out from EPA to get the uh, the volume obligations on paper. So we we're talking hard numbers, but boy, they're going to have to be really good numbers for uh, for the farmers to come on board with this thing. I, well, that's what you would think. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I would think, and we shall see. I've been wrong a time or two in the past. Just a few times. Yeah, maybe. You know, who's counting? Hmm, okay. Well, we've got news from Kansas. Talked last week about the explosion at the Cargill plant in Dodge City, Kansas, and uh, that was the explosion that uh, closed the plant down Thursday, Friday, and yesterday. They did say today the plant is back open for slaughter and they are receiving cattle. Uh, they had continued to process some animals that they already had hanging, but um, this is the the first day since the explosion that they are actually taking cattle back in. And this is a 6,000 head per day plant. So it is a, it's a big facility and now it's running again. So we got good news there finally in the uh, cattle industry. Yes, we do. I saw that as well. Well, what other news do you have for us, Delaney? Let's see. I think I am pretty much out of news for today, other than just looking continuously at the general economy as well as how that impacts the, the agricultural economy. We saw Kansas City's Federal Reserve put out a new survey showing, again, that farm loan demand is continuing to slow down in the third quarter of this year. However, volume remains up. They said that non-real estate lending was about 2% lower than a year ago. So just continuing that trend of maybe folks continuing to tighten their belts a little bit, so to speak, Mike. Yes. You know, and it's interesting. That was reported at the same time that Reuters or Bloomberg, I don't have the article up anymore. One of them did a whole story on BMO Harris, a bank, one of the major lenders in agriculture, and how they are coming under fire for some of the egg loans that they have written, which are now uh, now in default. Uh, BMO Harris has the highest rate of 90-day delinquencies in the industry at 13.5%. And uh, critics are saying this is because they they wrote loans that really they didn't underwrite very well. And farmers who went in asking for $2 million were walking out of the bank after a 30-minute meeting with a $12 million operating note, which uh, frankly wow. just didn't make any sense. I know. I wish I'd been banking there. I, my life would be a little different. Yeah, no kidding. That's a big loan. Yeah. So, so that story is out there. I'd encourage folks to read it. And just always remember, when you're doing your due diligence, just because the bank's going to give you $12 million, doesn't mean you need to spend the $12 million. Do what makes the most sense for your operation. Absolutely. Yeah, probably don't spend $12 million if you're not going to bring $12 million back in. Exactly. Exactly, Delaney. That is why you are in charge of the business. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've got one other story, and I think it's interesting, and I'm guessing a lot of our listeners will be interested in it. There is a petition right now on change.org, sort of the grassroots petition website thing, about bringing whole milk back to school. And uh, basically this uh, – this, um, Sherry Bunting, who is a writer for the weekly dairy magazine Farm Shine in Pennsylvania, is uh, putting this – petition together, and she wants to get 10,000 signatures and present it to the head of the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service during the third meeting of the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee next week. So if this is something you're passionate about, I've got a feeling most of our listeners are probably interested in seeing good whole milk back in the schools. Um, get on there. Go to change.org. The petition is called Bring Whole Milk Back to School, Whole Milk for Healthy Kids. As of right now, they've got 8,214 signatures, and it's climbing by the second. So log in there, and uh, let's get it over 10,000 so we can get high-quality milk back in schools. 
And remind us how you can sign that petition again, Mike. What was that, Delaney? Remind us how to sign that petition again. Go to change or just Google change.org. Bring whole milk back to school. Whole milk for healthy kids petition. And uh, it should pop right up there. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. You betcha. Check it out, listeners. Let's uh, can't go wrong with whole milk. Right, Delaney? Mm, I'm going to disagree with you there, but. I know. But it's any kind of milk, whether it's 2% or whole or even 1%, is better than skim. Or better than almond milk. Oh, right. Oh, 100%. We have various nut juices. Yes, yes indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see if we're out of news. Should we see where the market's closed for the day, Delaney? Let's do that. All right. And we had an incredible overnight session with big gains in all the grains, but that was turned around at the open of the day, and uh, we finished marginally higher in corn and soybeans with wheat taking it on the chin. In the corn market, December corn was up three quarters of a cent to 388 even, the March contract up a half to finish at $4 on the nose. In soybeans, November was up three quarters of a penny at 934 even, January up one and a half, finished at 948 and a quarter. And in Chicago wheat, the December contract dropped five and a half cents to close at 518 even the March contract was down five and a quarter to close the day at 524 and a quarter. Looking over at livestock, we've got mixed trade in the cattle complex. December live cattle down 17 and a half cents at 113.70. The Feb contract down 12 and a half. Close the day at 119.10. In feeders, November feeder cattle up 65 cents at 143.50. January up 70 to finish the day at 139.80. And weakness in lean honks today. The December contract dropped two dollars thirty two and a half cents to close at 65.50 February down a dollar 90 finish the day at 76.27 and a half and looking over at the dairy market bit of a correction after yesterday's incredible rally in the deferred months October class 3 milk was down a penny at 18.65 with the November down 8 cents to finish the day at 19.10 without further ado let's kick it over to our conversation with Emma Weston from AgriDigital Well, folks, for today's interview, we are going back in time, so to speak, but we're also going back to the future in a way, looking at the next wave of technology moving into the agriculture sphere with our friend Emma Weston, the CEO and co-founder of AgriDigital. Emma, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, it's great to be back, Mike and Delaney. Now, it has been quite a while since we had you on the podcast the first time, and I know we've got a lot of new listeners who might not yet be familiar with AgriDigital. So, Emma, tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Absolutely. So, we are an Australian-based company, as you can hear from my accent. Uh, we have built out a digital commodity management platform that is effectively digitizing all of the trade, finance, and traceability transactions into one easy-to-use platform for the grains industry all the way from farmer to consumer. And we're really just aiming to ensure that working across farmers, elevators, traders, and merchandisers, we're bringing everyone into the digital age and the digital supply chain, making all of those trade finance and traceability transactions as easy as possible. So Emma, explain to me the difference. This might seem like an obvious one, but I just want you to walk it through for our listeners. Obviously, we already do digital trading via the online futures and, and commodity platform. How do you guys take it one step further doing it from farmer to then end user? Yeah, so what we're doing currently is able to take advantage of various platforms, applications that are out there, particularly, as you said, for managing uh, futures and, and foreign exchange if you're um, from overseas. Um, 
But what we're really doing is looking at all of those different contract bases and price bases that we trade physical uh, in and the movement of that physical commodity through the supply chain from the farm gate all the way through to export or to a processor or indeed just through the trade um, global supply chain. So we're actually digitizing that whole process and connecting into existing digital platforms and applications um, that exist already. So Emma, let's talk about it from a grower's perspective. Let's walk through the process. I have just grown my grain. I've got corn grown out there. I'm gonna run my combine through it. I'm gonna get it harvested. What's my next step if I'm working with AgriDigital? How much do I work with you as opposed to perhaps my local elevator? Yeah, so the where AgriDigital is being used by customers at the moment in, um, in the States and across Australia as well is typically with a farmer who has on-farm storage. And they're using our WayPath um, application, which is to receive their deliveries into their on-farm storage, but also to note those deliveries if they're going into third-party elevators to be able to manage all of that commodity across the various contracts that they may have entered into, uh, to be able to optimize the pricing and the delivery um, of those contracts and to be able to manage their inventory on farm and elsewhere. So we're really replacing a lot of the, the paper and the diary logging that's been happening in the field. Uh, but also once that asset is sitting, that commodity is sitting in uh, an on-farm or an elevator somewhere, being able to unlock the value of that inventory so that if the farmer wishes to be able to monetize or access working capital against that asset, they're able to do so through WayPath as well. Well, Emma, cat's out of the bag now. As you mentioned there, you are into the U.S. as well. Yeah. Tell us what that expansion process was like and what now being in the U.S. or North American market does for AgriDigital. Look, we are so excited to be launching into um, to the US and to Canada. It's not something that we've taken lightly. It's a really large market with a lot of diversity and um, there have been um, some really significant research that we've put in over the past 15 months or so. Uh, so we've had people on the ground, we've been speaking with a number of our users and potential users to make sure that the product is right for this market. Uh, we've made some key changes to ensure that we have the regulatory aspects right. Um, but you're right, we're, we're here and we're very excited. It's been um, a process that's taken around about 18 months to, to get to market. And we have an early adopter program underway at the moment. So we've got some really significant um, farmers and uh, farming groups that are using our WayPath app uh, currently for, for this harvest across the rice, uh, corn and soybean belt. Now, so as you look to expand, what's the timeline look like for AgriDigital rolling from the early adopter phase to be more mainstream? Yeah, so we're, uh, we've got a really um, exciting six months in front of us, Mike, I think. And, you know, we are seeing ourselves as learning a lot still. Um, we realize that this is a, a large market. We want to get it right. We want to make sure that we add value from day one um, for farmers. There are a lot of different options and digital platforms out there as we were talking to earlier, ranging from agronomy all the way through to um, you know, futures optimization and pricing optimization. So we wanna make sure that we get this right with our farming group. So we're gonna take the next six months to really work with this early adopter group. We've got around about 40 growers that we're looking to work with. Um, we've still got some, some open positions if anybody wants to come in and be part of that um, early adopter phase. And then we'll move to a full launch in March, April next year. 
Emma, does this work with all types of commodities or is it specific to just the grains? It is specific just to grains at this point, Delaney. So all grains, however, um, so that includes for us um, when we're talking grains, we're talking oil seeds, we're talking legumes, pulses, um, the full spectrum, rice as well. Um, but at this stage, it's really focused on the grains industry, um, working with farmers, traders and elevators in that space. However, it's interesting that you've, um, you've mentioned other commodities. We've also had interest from the cotton industry, the sugar industry and the coffee industry. Hmm. Very interesting. I guess that'll be something you have to do a little more research into maybe. Yeah, I think that um, the coffee industry is really interesting. Um, for us, it's actually not dis too dissimilar to the grains industry. My background is grains and, and same with my co-founders. So it's definitely what we know. Um, somewhat embarrassing that we've got about 85 years of joint experience in uh, grain supply chains. So we've certainly got the deep expertise there, but very open to being able to do what we're doing with grains and to be able to create the benefit, I guess, across multiple commodities. So Emma, let's look ahead to the future. It's three to five years from now, AgriDigital has expanded into the Western Hemisphere. You've, of course, grown in the U.S. and Canada. What do you see as sort of the, uh, the next levels of optimization you want to bring to your customers? That's such a great question, Mike. Really, the vision for us is to ensure that farmers in particular can participate more actively in the supply chain than what they do at the moment. We really don't want to perpetuate the farmer as price taker. We really want to see farmers who, who want to be, and it's not every farmer, I get that, but for farmers who want to be looking at the way that they can generate more, gen more value off farm and participate more deeper into the supply chain, we want to be able to optimize that for them. We want to see farmers as their own traders, farmers as their own storers, and being able to extract that value that is being sitting with others in the supply chain and bring it back into the farm gate. Well, that will be really exciting to see as technology continues to change and hopefully help out the agricultural landscape. Emma, before we let you go, let us know how we can find more information, how our listeners can find more information about AgriDigital or possibly interact with you on social media. Yes, yeah, so easy. So we're agridigital.io, A-G-R-I-D-I-G-I-T-A-L.io. Uh, on the web and really easy to find me. I am Emma M. Weston on Twitter. So that's E-M-M-A-M-W-E-S-T-O-N on Twitter. Or otherwise, you can email me directly, emma.weston at agridigital.io. Well, Emma, we certainly appreciate your time chatting us through agridigital. Really interesting stuff. Thanks so much and look forward to chatting again another time. All right. Well, again, a big thank you there to Emma. Just real interesting stuff that they are doing. And that's exciting that she is making her way over into the U.S. to help producers out here. Absolutely, folks. Check them out and uh, stay tuned. I'm sure we'll have Emma on, on again in the future to have her uh, talk about what all is going on in the world of digital technology and how it relates to agriculture. But Delaney, if our listeners are craving some digital technology. They can use their computing devices and head over to agnewsdaily.com to check out our website, or they can visit us on the uh, social media sites. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. And with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.